but also God is everything. And if there's evil, then God must also, God forbid, be evil. Uh, so the Gnostic dualist point of view that, that somehow God himself is evil and the devil becomes good, no, this is not what we're talking about here. And I myself, for one, do not believe that there's any Gnostic uh, dualist influence, or not very much anyway, on any of the Islamic traditions of what we might call devil worship. Um, a misnomer to be sure, but uh, we'll use it on, on the understanding that we're not talking about the black mass. I mean, after all, this is the usual image of Satanism in the West, is Anton LaVey and the Satanist's Bible and all the, uh, you know, Charles Manson and all those crackpots out in California who like to carve up chickens and human beings and and uh, do all kinds of, you know, really nasty and unpleasant things in the belief that Satan will then reward them. Again, uh, this is not, really has nothing to do with devil worship in the Islamic world as I understand it, as I've heard about it, and even as I've seen it to a certain extent, although I have not visited any of these uh, tribal groups like the Yazidis, whom we'll be discussing later. I'm somewhat more, I am somewhat familiar, I first became familiar with this point of view by talking to Persian Sufis. This was not something that I knew about. And um, I later read the Locus Classicus, the, the primary source on all of this, which is the, the uh, Kitab al-Tawasin of Mansur Halaj, the great Sufi martyr, one of the very earliest Sufis, and we'll be quoting from him later. In my opinion, the best way for us to think about this phenomena, which I'm going to talk about, this devil worship, is to approach it through William Blake, and specifically through one of his most exquisite um, works of art, the uh, portrait of Lucifer before his fall. Uh, Lucifer in his glory, I think it's called. Um, this, uh, I, I reproduced this, uh, this painting in my book on angels. It was the, the one the one devil that I put into the Book of Angels because of this peculiar status that Blake gave to Satan, perhaps unique of all the Christian mystics, if you can call Blake a Christian mystic, and I'm not sure you can. For Blake, Satan was the imagination. And uh, this, is, this turns out to be really fascinating because unbeknownst to Blake, I'm sure that Blake was not aware of this medieval Sufi tradition, the Sufis also uh, came to exactly the same conclusion. And Blake also, for example, said that Jehovah was a fool, was an evil god. Again, I do not think that Blake was being a Gnostic dualist here, although he might have been more influenced by Gnostic dualism than the Sufis were. I think Blake was a radical monist, as I claim to be myself, someone who believes that all reality is one in a total and radical sense, not just in a superficial philosophical sense, but in a real sense that reality is one. And um, the devil for him, Satan for him, represented the, rev the, the revolutionary, fervid, um, fully alive, fully joyful, fully self-realized, fully sensually realized human imagination. And in that exquisite painting of, Satan, of Lucifer in his glory, all which we are going to say tonight has been given uh, visual representation. And if you want to, if you're the kind of person who can get everything 
that you need to get from a single icon and you don't have to listen to uh, blatherskates like me droning on and on about a subject but can just gobble everything down from a single picture then this is the picture you want to look at and um, <laughs> I guess here I am plugging my book again, Angels. Uh, a number of listeners have told me that they've had a good had trouble finding copies of the book, which is not surprising. And I can only suggest that they uh, get the book directly from England, from Thames and Hudson. But anyway, this particular painting of Blake, surely my book is not the only place where you can come across it. Any, uh, any one of these um, compendiums of the great greater or more more major works of Blake is almost certain to have it. It's a very famous painting. And uh, as I say, I suggest that you contemplate that image rather than any Islamic image in order to understand what these uh, Muslims are talking about. Well, let's, um, let's plunge into some of these stories. I have no idea how far I'm going to get with this. I've uh, marked off quite a lot of material. I doubt that we're going to be able to get through the whole thing. Um, the first quote that I'm going to read, already I have to explain something about it. It's from the letters of Anil Qazata Hamadani. Anil Qazata Hamadani was uh, a Sufi who came later than Halaj, who was influenced by Halaj, also influenced by Ahmad Ghazali. And both Halaj and Ghazali and uh, Anil Qazat are perhaps the three of them together, you might even say, represent the classic. Uh, Satanist position in Sufism, if I can put it that way. From these three people uh, come all of the hyper-esoteric explanations of, of the meaning of Satan. And these are letters which uh, Anil Qazat wrote to either one of his disciples, or actually I think these letters, these were letters that went back and forth with Ahmad Ghazali himself. So that some of this material from the Majmua uh, the collected works of uh, Ahmad Ghazali will be paralleling these letters of Anil Qazat because these two men were in communication with each other. Anil Qazat, I guess, was a disciple of Ahmad Ghazali. So he says, Let me speak plainly and not be afraid. Is the duck afraid of, of the water in a deluge? And what difference does it make to a swimmer if the ship sinks or not? Joseph secretly told Benjamin one thing while publicly accusing him of theft and exposing him to degradation before both worlds. And Benjamin was content throughout. Take note, take note. Verily in Joseph and his brethren are signs of God's sovereignty for the inquiring. That's a quote from the Quran. Now having heard a fiction in this context, an interesting way to refer to the Quran by the way, pay heed to what lies behind the apparent censure of Benjamin so that you may understand what God told Eblis inwardly and why when Eblis was content God consequently shamed him outwardly by saying and indeed my curse is upon you and Eblis said I have a soul which bears the burden of your love as long as I have this soul I shall not cease to sacrifice myself in your service. For him, that is for Satan, there is no thought of anyone but God. And then from another section by the same author, What choice has a piece of iron which is subjected to magnetic attraction but to be drawn to the surface thereof? What choice has the moth which has become enamored of the fire 
but to hurl itself upon the fire. God told Adam and Eve, And do not approach this tree. And he ordered the tree to stay close to Adam so that he would not be forgetful of it for a single moment. And God is the best of schemers. Another direct quote from the Koran. God told Iblis inwardly whatever he told him. What do you suppose that was? There is no one in heaven or earth who can follow up this matter unless God wills it. Then he, God, told Adam outwardly, or told Iblis outwardly, prostrate. The poor fellow was forced, according to what was commanded of him inwardly to say, Shall I fall prostrate before that which you have created of clay? To which God said, And indeed my curse is upon you. Iblis could only say, The robe of honor is conferred by you, whether it attract your curse or your mercy. Iblis saw all mankind from first to last as merely children on the path of God. How eloquently Hossein Mansur Halaj puts it in his Tawasin. Quote, the quality of chivalry can be ascribed only to Iblis and Muhammad. Now there's a really shocking statement. The quality of, ch of chivalry, which is a, v a highly valued spiritual quality in Sufism, can be ascribed only to Iblis and Muhammad of all creatures. O Lord, I do not worship you for the sake of mercy. I maintain no condition for my devotion. I am content with whatever you will and whatever you do. While others seek to avoid your curse, I make it the crown on my head and the blazon on my sleeve. What committed aspiration, comments Anil Khazat. He, that is Eblis, said, I am ready for the post-eternal pain. May you be endlessly merciless for my sake. Adam's people have heard the name of Eblis, but I know that for him there is no thought of any individual for he is subjected to post-eternal pain. His sustenance is the curse that affects him continuously, and he drinks it just as God's friends do God's mercy. In fact, Iblis despises mercy more than the friends despise that curse. What do the people of the world know of this? This, uh, by the way, um, all of this kind of material in the to the ears of the believing Muslim, the ordinary believing Muslim, will come as a total mind-boggling shock. Um, this tradition of Sufism, which Dr. Norbach is uncovering for us here, really is a secret. Not in the sense that um, that there's I not I don't mean in the in the sort of um, thriller. Uh, Whitley Stryber sense that there's some kind of conspiracy to keep this material away from ordinary believers. Anyone who can read uh, can go to the bookstores and buy the works of Najmud of Anil um, Qazat and uh, and Halaj. Uh, the the Kitab al-Tawasin is a very well-known book in Sufism, but its implications are simply not discussed in many circles, and. Uh, there's something di distinctly scandalous about this material. Uh, it's almost as if you had, it, in fact, I think it would be fair to say it is as if you were to ask a Christian saint what they thought of Satan and to hear that they thought Satan was the greatest mystic, the greatest lover of God. I th the, the shock would be very similar here. Um, 
except for one thing, and that is that the Muslim can always come to understand this in terms of God's um, total mercy. There are plenty of traditions, plenty of prophetic traditions to the effect that even hell will not last forever, that all human beings, that all beings will eventually be saved, uh, that even the devil will eventually be saved, and so forth and so on. Now, this Gnostic approach, this esoteric approach is much wilder than that. Uh, essentially, what they're saying is that not only not only is Satan himself not damned in any in any vulgar sense of the word, but is in fact still a very high uh, being in the hierarchy of of, uh, of esoteric uh, of esoteric knowledge and spiritual attainment. But at least for the ordinary Muslim, there is this over overriding view. Uh, of uh, unity, tawhid, the the basic unity concept of oneness or unity that pervades and permeates all of Islam, that would allow the ordinary uh, Orthodox Muslim to at least get a handle on this extremely unusual and dangerous and frightening concept that Satan might not be simply just the enemy, but uh, somehow a paragon or paradigm of spiritual attainment. However, I would say that uh, this, these subjects are simply not discussed except in uh, very sophisticated and advanced Sufi circles. Uh, the next, next quote is from the Tawasin of Halaj. He said, according to Halaj, this is a very famous story, According to Halaj, Moses met Eblis on the slopes of Sinai and asked him, What stopped you from prostrating? In other words, when God commanded him to prostrate to Adam. Eblis explained, My claim is that I was worshipping the unique object. If I had prostrated before Adam, I would have been like you. When God told you once to look at the mountain, you did so. But when God told me a thousand times to prostrate before Adam, I refused. That claim was my spiritual reality. Moses replies, You disregarded the command. Eblis says, That was a test, not a command. Moses counters, But your form changed. Oh, Moses, says Eblis, That was a deception. Here is the real Eblis. A state is not to be relied upon because it changes, whereas Gnosis is correct, remaining as it is, even if the individual changes. Moses asks, Do you remember him now? Oh, Moses, said Eblis, one does not remember remembrance. I am remembered as he is remembered. Remembrance of him is remembrance of me. His remembrance is mine. How can two remember one another unless they are one? Now my service, this is Eblis goes on to say, now my service is purer, my time is sweeter, and my remembrance more sublime. For I served him for my own pleasure in pre-eternity, and now I serve him for his. I have done away with craving, prohibition, and repulsion, harm and benefit, all have disappeared. He made me alone, driving me until I forsook the company of others. 
I was kept from others because of my partiality, changed because of my consternation, confounded through my banishment, estranged from God through my service, an outlaw because of my words, deprecated because of my eulogizing, distanced from God through my separation, separated from God through my contemplative vision, exposed through my union, drawn to him because of my severance, and cut off from him to negate my egoism. In being true to him, I have not erred in what he ordained. I have not denied his ordainment. I have not been concerned by the change of form. If he consigns me to torment in the fire for an eternity of eternities, I will not prostrate before other than him, nor abase myself before anyone. I shall not know other than him. My claim is that of the sincere. I am one of the sincere ones amongst the lovers. Hot stuff. Again, the idea of remembrance here is, uh, again, this would be shocking to the Sufis, because remembrance, or zikr, is the invocation of a divine name. So when Satan says, my, re my remembrance is his remembrance, it's as if he were saying, it's all right, instead of invoking God under the name of Allah, to invoke me under the name of Shaitan or Iblis. And in fact, uh, some of the Persian devil worshippers, the, the um, Shaitan Parastian of Kurdistan, uh, use the word, uh, use the name of Satan in their remembrances. And when they greet each other, for example, instead of saying, Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you, they say, Ya Zati Shaitan, hail, O essence of Satan. So apparently there are some people who took Halaj's uh, words on this subject quite literally and began to invoke the name of Satan as one of the divine names. As I say, this would, this would cause the Ayatollahs absolutely to keel over in a dead faint. They would not be able to take this, this kind of uh, esoteric attitude. What we're talking here tonight is deep scandal from an Islamic point of view. And I should point out that of the three men whom I've already mentioned, Halaj, Ain al-Qazat, and Ahmad Ghazali, two of them were executed by the uh, Islamic uh, Orthodox authorities. Halaj was... Um, drawn and quartered in Baghdad, and uh, Ain al-Qazat was put to death. I don't remember what the technique was. There's a very interesting book translated by A.J. Arbery called Confessions of a Sufi Martyr, if I'm not mistaken, which until quite recently was the only book by Ain al-Qazat available in English and is really his apologia that he wrote shortly before his execution. And it's not one of his more interesting books because he was at that point trying to show how his ideas were compatible with orthodoxy. It's in these letters, which were even in Persian, I believe, only published recently, that uh, Anil Khazat uh, let his hair down and, so to speak, and discussed this um, idea of devil worship in a very open way. And as far as I know, it's that kind of thing which got him in trouble and got him iced by the authorities. Here is a section from a book called Shahr Kalamat Sufiya, Commentary on the Words of the Sufis, by uh -huh, by Ruzbahana Bakli, the great saint of Shiraz. He says, Sal ibn Abdullah, one of the very great early Sufis of Baghdad, I believe, related. Quote, I encountered Eblis, and I recognized him. 
He knew that I recognized him. A conversation ensued. I had my say, and he had his. The talk grew heated, leading to a dispute which went on and on, until we both stopped. I was at a loss, and so was he. One of the last things he said to me was, O Sal, God said, and my mercy embraces all things. This is the general case. I am sure you are aware that I, Satan, am a thing. And God's statement presupposes that everything is embraced, even the most hideous of things. Therefore, his mercy extends to me as well. Saul continued, I swear by God that the grace and power of expression that Eblis displayed in interpreting this verse dumbfounded me. He understood something in it that had evaded my understanding. He knew something about the guidance provided by the verse that I had failed to perceive. I was left stunned and pensive. I began to study that verse in my heart until I reached the words, quote, Therefore I shall ordain it, mercy, for those who ward off evil, unquote. Ah, I was delighted. I imagined I had found victory in the argument and that I could break Eblis's back with this revelation. I said to him, O cursed one, God has limited the general statement by declaring, I shall ordain it for those who ward off evil. Eblis smiled and said, O Sal, I do not think you so, I, I do not think you so ignorant, nor do I believe you are serious in this. Did it never occur to you, O Sal, that the limitation is yours, not God's? I understood. I was confounded, saliva stuck in my throat. I swear by God I could find no answer, nor could I close the door upon him. I knew that he craved something, namely mercy. He went his way and I went mine. I swear by God I have no idea what will happen in the future, for God has given no indication of the resolution of this ambiguity. I was left without any understanding as to what God's will was in creating Satan. I cannot give an opinion as to whether God's decree concerning him has terminated or not, for when God broadens his decree, he does not narrow it again. However, he has appointed different ways for his devotees to follow. He bestows grace upon one group in one way and upon another in another. One cannot circumscribe God's intention with respect to anything, for he transcends any such attempt. God's mercy toward the devout is a necessary part of his divinity, that which he has made requisite upon himself while his mercy towards the non-devout is a part of his benevolence and grace, just as piety of the devout is a part of benevolence and grace. Thus, the court of God's mercy embraces everything. I love that uh, the drama of that little anecdote. It's uh, typical of Ruzbahan and Bakli to write so beautifully, uh, to, to dramatize, almost to novelize, uh, Ruzbahan was almost alone amongst the Sufis in this totally, uh, really very modern, I think, uh, confessional narrative approach. Uh, he's always telling you about his own visions, and he's very fascinated by other people's visions and their extraordinary experiences. And uh, as you can tell from this uh, from this reading, he clearly has recreated this entire incident in his, own, in his own mind and described it much more dramatically than most Islamic authors would. I just wanted to go back to the beginning to read, the uh, beginning of the book, to read a, a little poem by uh, Sa'adi from the Bustan. Sa'adi is one of the, the great Persian poets that uh, 
throw some light on this uh, on the appearance of Eblis. Um, he says, "This is a, uh, a this is a poem, not prose." I do not know in which book I read that someone saw Eblis in a dream. He appeared angelic like a stately pine. A light like the sun was radiating from his face. The dreamer went to meet him and exclaimed, Amazing! Is that you? No angel has such fairness. With a face like this, beauteous as the moon, why are you known in the world as being ugly? Why did the artist in the palace of the king draw a visage so gloomy, grotesque, and ravaged? When that benighted devil heard these words, he wailed and shrieked, crying, O fortunate one, that isn't my real form. Why is it that the pen is in the hand of my enemy? Uh, The the saying, the pen is in the hand of the enemy, uh, has become... uh, a uh, popular tag in uh, in Persia. It means that uh, the only account available of such and such has been written by someone who's against it. And uh, for example, the Gnostic dualists could have said for years that the pen is in the hand of the enemy because the only thing that we had to read about the Gnostic dualists was the fulminations of the church heresographers, and we had no texts from the Gnostics themselves. Similarly, similarly. Iblis is complaining here that all the religious writers are in God's camp and none of them none of them have done his beauty his spiritual beauty justice because the pen is in the hand of the enemy and you could say that this school of thought that I'm reading here the pro pro shaitan school of thought if we can put it that way is finally doing something about that finally snatching the pen from the hand of the enemy giving it to, to as Dr. Rubash himself says um, in this book, we have given the pen to the great Sufi Gnostics so that they may tell the story of Eblis for you in their own words. Going on, I wish I could read uh, every single one of the quotes in this book. It really wouldn't take all that long because it's a short book, but there's a lot of uh, repetition. And some of, the, some of the chapters, I don't want to give you the idea, by the way, that this, the whole book is devoted to the praise of Eblis. It also has chapters from the Orthodox point of view. Uh, all from Sufis, but as I said, not all the not all the Sufis were were uh, of this school of thought. This was purely the uh, ultra radical, ultra. Mm, I don't want to say unorthodox because many Sufis still accept that uh, that Halaj and Ahmad Ghazali uh, were within the pale, so to speak, of orthodoxy. But let's just say the quasi heterodox school. I seem to need a lot of tobacco to go along with this discourse tonight. However, there is a chapter called In Praise of Eblis, right out front, and um, that's the chapter that we've reached now. Halaj said, amongst the people of the spirit, there is no adherent to the divine unity like Eblis. Ahmed Ghazali maintained that whoever does not learn adherence to divine unity from Iblis is an unbeliever. Halaj said, Oh, by the way, Halaj uh, also at the same time uh, has a defense of Pharaoh 
who uh, in the Quran, as in as in the Bible, is the the absolute epitome of the bad guy, and um, Halaj has uh, not only gone so far as to defend Eblis, he's also he also defends Pharaoh. For example, he says, Eblis, at a time when he was not aware of anything other than himself, said, "I am better than Adam." Pharaoh said to his people, "Aside from myself, I do not know of any other god for you." because he did not recognize that his own people could distinguish between reality and unreality. I, that is Halaj, said, if you do not know him, then recognize his sign. I am that sign. I am the true reality, which indicates my continuous realization of the reality. So Halaj is saying, this is, by the way, I am the true reality in, in, in Arabic, anal haq, is um, much more even more blasphemous than it sounds to us in English because haq is one of usually translated as truth or reality is one of the divine names so when Halaj said anal haq I am the truth uh, he wasn't in effect um, if this statement is taken literally he is committing heresy and here he's being quite blunt about it he's comparing himself to Eblis and Pharaoh and saying that, uh, in effect, uh, that because his claim to be the sign of the, tr or, or in fact to be identified with the true reality, somehow puts the claims of Satan and Pharaoh in a different light as well. So that suddenly, uh, instead of thinking of these, of Satan and Pharaoh as simply worthy to be worthy to be stoned, worthy to be denied, somehow to be a mystic means that we must carry out what I called what I call a benign reversal of symbolism in other words the symbolism becomes its opposite not in a negative or evil sense but in the sense but in a positive uh, positive sense of esoteric or inner knowledge Halaj said the claim of divine knowledge became indisputable only for Muhammad and Iblis Iblis approached the essence but fell, while Muhammad approached, and it was revealed. God said to Muhammad, look, and he did not look. He turned neither right nor left. The eye turned not aside, nor yet was overbold. God said to Iblis, prostrate yourself, and he did not. Iblis claimed divine knowledge, but continued acting under his own will and power. Um, let's see. In heaven there was no worshiper or adherent to divine unity like Iblis. He was confounded by the essence 